0: What is up? Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves Podcast. I'm Omid Farhang. My guest today, Guy Shelmerdeen, one of the most respected commercial directors of the past two decades. Guy's a creator to the core with an inspiring focus on craft, performance, characters, and concept, creating an impressive and eclectic body of work with a comedic through line. Guy joined the production company Smuggler in 2003 after winning Best New Director at Cannes, and he's remained there ever since. He has helmed award-winning spots for clients such as Mini Cooper, Ikea, Virgin Mobile, Coke, Honda, Skittles, Volkswagen, Weedabix, and Barclays Bank. Other notable projects include work for Hertz with Adam and Eve DDB, Money Supermarket with Mother London, and Jockey with Droga5. Guy is a rare talent to find equal levels of success in the U.S. and European markets. He also created the pioneering VR genre experience Catatonic, which is the first ever live action virtual reality horror film. It was lauded at South by Southwest, Cannes, and Comic-Con. Recent notable work for Guy includes his campaign for Uber Eats featuring the great Patrick Stewart and Mark Hamill, the Star Wars vs. Star Trek face-off we've all been waiting for with extra tomato. Other fan favorites include his inventive work for Starburst Vertical Salon, which is considered a technical feat of production design. He's a storyteller and comedy maker who has created one of the most original and distinctive bodies of work in our business. This is Guy Shelmerdine and I talking to ourselves.
1: Before you start, I just want to let you know I, I'm I, probably because I'm in a bubble. I didn't realize that you had this podcast until you emailed me about it. And I, uh, Last night, just like looking through, and I, I, I know everybody. I, I chose Ari Weiss only because he's a good friend, and I yeah. was like, I want to hear that guy's voice, you know. And uh, I, I listened to the whole thing last night before bed, and it was awesome. So oh, thank you,
0: thank you, man. It's it started really as like, man, I, I don't even know if anyone will ever listen to this, but I just I need some new inputs. I need to talk to some yeah. smarter people. I was I I was kind of doing the same shitty impression of Alex Bogusky. Oh, you know, I was like, I need to talk to some different people and I want it to be a meaningful conversation. And if you point microphones in people's faces, they are way more thoughtful. And so I just started with friends. And in the early going, I would include Ari in this. It was a little like the Chris Farley sketch on Saturday Night Live. Like, remember when you did the Skittles campaign? That was awesome. So I've I've learned how to, you know, 47 or 48 episodes and I'm getting better at, you know, guiding conversations and extracting the right information. But The cool thing is you you start with friends and then you go to strangers and those strangers, you know, you're, you're, we're the company we keep. So you go, Hey, like these people have done it and they'll go, okay, well, I've never heard of you and I've never heard of this, but if they do it, if they've done it, I'll do it too. You know? (laughs) So Guy, Shelmerdine, we start every episode in the same place. Where are you from? What did your parents do?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I grew up in, uh, England in a village called Vare, village, uh, in Kent, which is a county South of London um my uh mother and father uh got divorced when i was pretty young my father was in the film industry he was an executive producer Uh, my mother um uh spent her time raising us and uh you know i eventually went to boarding school in west sussex when i was 12 years old so i was kind of sent away from home at 12 which i uh still to this day have fond fond memories of had a great time um and uh, yeah so that's that's kind of my in a nutshell how I was raised
0: I mean I don't mean to be presumptuous because your father was in the film industry so I'll just ask what did 12 year old Guy Shelmerdine want to be when he grew up
1: yeah I mean I definitely I was on film sets when I was a kid you know so I um I uh, got to step on and, you know, see the excitement of all that. And I I, I do believe that that had uh, definitely uh, was ingrained in my DNA to kind of maybe end up being on a film set. Um, it was definitely exciting when you were very young kind of to see, um, you know, the excitement of, you know, people running around and, and you know, filming, uh, you know, people on lavish, Film set. So, you know, for me, that was always kind of a, another reality that seemed to be more exciting than, you know, your real life. So I always enjoyed um, doing that. And I think, you know, that's probably why I'm doing what I'm doing now.
0: What great exposure to. I mean, I think, separate of the excitement, it's much, it must just be like, you know, for those who want to be in film as a kid, it feels like such a distant world. It feels so mystical. And meanwhile, you're on sets and it's maybe just. It's stripping back some of that mystique. And you go, like, these are just people and they're showing up to work. And that's the parking lot and they drive normal cars. And when the director says cut, they have normal conversations. And so it just sort of instantly seems more attainable because you can, you know, you can, you have this kind of tangible example to go off of.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, it wasn't like every day I was on a film set, but, you know, here and there, like it was a special treat to go visit my father on the film set. So I think, you know, it felt like uh you know just a you know just just very exciting and i think you know even when i end up going to advertising i you know i had that same excitement as you know with being a creative if you get to go and make something that's the part of the job sometimes you know
0: you you know you dabble in so many different genres and you're you're not easily relegated to a box you are well known for for comedy among other things so i like to ask you know specific to you, what's your biggest artistic influence as a kid that maybe shaped your sensibility? And why was it Monty Python?
1: <laughs> of course, Monty Python, there was so much great comedy on BBC, you know, yeah. um, you know, 40 Towers. Um, I was just talking about um, last week, you know, in terms of what a great BBC show um, to grow up on. And I think, you know, I think in England, you know, you, you know, pe- people generally have a good sense of humor, you know, you kind of, riff off that um it's you know the the just the you know culture is just a smaller um tightly knit culture when you know living on a small island so i think you know everybody kind of you know uh, in a way kind of laughs at the same things um generally and um you know and advertising too you know back then you know great comedy ads when i was growing up you know obviously you know, really shone and everyone got to see them and everybody was excited about them. So, you know, I think just generally um, humor is something, you know, everyone talks about British humor and I think it's something that, you know, everybody has from my mom to my father to my sister, you know, we all kind of, you know, we we all have a good sense of humor.
0: Yeah. It's funny. You're known so much of your work is, is comedic. And so often when someone has a board with the right type of dialogue. They go to you cause they know you can bring it to life. You know, we worked together about 11 years ago. And one thing that I found about you is like, it's that, it's that wonderful contradiction of like, you're very serious. You're a very serious director. You're very serious about comedy. You're very serious about comedic timing. Um, I, I mean, maybe that's true of a lot of directors who are, who sort of, you know, are sought after for their comedic sensibility is like, it's not that you're like a failed stand up comedian. It's, it's the craft of comedy and the timing of comedy.
1: Yeah, it's hard. It's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's a really hard thing to articulate. I think comedy because, um, you know, in you know, there's, there's, when you get scripts through, there's those there's those comedic ideas that you know that generally that like, the whole thing is funny. It's a great concept. It's a comedic concept, and you know, it's all you can do is. um, you know, fail on it because it's just like, it's so good and you just got to just execute it the way it's been written. But then there's a lot of work out there that's not funny, but you're trying to bring the humour in different places. And I think that's when it's more, th- that that's when it's harder to articulate and it's a bigger challenge. And I think, you know, as years have gone on, um, you know, I'm more confident in going into, a, you know, in, into the process a little bit more blind, not knowing exactly where the comedy is going to come from because I have the trust probably in the experience now that, you know, you're going to work hard to find the right actor or or the right prop or something that will ultimately uh, add humor and make it a a funny piece, you know? Um, So I think it's, you know, I think there's a balance between, um, you know, comedy and, you know, and how serious you have to take it because, you know, like it's a serious job to try and find comedy in somewhere where there might not be obvious comedic joke written, you know?
0: Right. Uh, One of your first jobs in advertising was not actually on the production side, but uh, as you made reference to on the agency side where you spent the late nineties as an art director at Cliff Freeman, you know, for some of our younger listeners, it's, you know, I describe it as like before there was a droga five, there was Crispin Porter before there was Crispin Porter, there was Cliff Freeman. So I wonder if you could just give me a little snapshot of what Cliff Freeman felt like in the late '90s what you were walking into, and maybe if there was a lesson or two that you learned working at an agency like that that you've kind of you've kind of held on to now that you're a director <coughs> and most of your time is spent you know working with agency people
1: yeah no I mean I think' you're, I think you're right I mean Cliff Freeman was a magical place um, when my partner Grant Holland and I we, we were working at a small agency called ground zero in los angeles and we were very young we were in early 20s and you know we had been fortunate enough to make a very s- successful um tv campaign for um espn and it kind of got us noted and you know i was you know, i'd grown up in a small village ended up in la which was very exciting but you know new york kind of beckoned and we sort of saw we were kind of called upon by uh, a handful of agencies to go there and interview after we won all these awards and it was you know, I mean, we it was absolutely fantastic, you know, because we were so young and we were barely earning any money. I mean, I think we were just kind of out of uh, internship almost, you know, like it was like the first job. And suddenly we were, you know, in a room with, um, you know, Cliff Freeman and Eric Silver and and talking to them about, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how they really, you know, they really wanted us to go and work there and we were just couldn't believe it. So, um you know we ended up moving pretty quickly to new york and my wife also um you know we all we all moved together and um you know and we we landed in this agency that was unlike you know any you know i have so many great memories of it because you know basically it was the, the we were you know, and anyone listening who, who knew of those days you know we were basically in the Saatchi and Saatchi building which was downtown LA and it was a very you know you walked in i remember walking into the lobby and there was this huge Frank Stella um sculpture i mean i i mean they i don't know if they're considered paintings or sculptures but huge i mean like multi multi-million pound dollar uh you know works of art just in the lobby and you know Frank Stella was this huge influence on me when I was at art school and when I was at boarding school and so to to be walking past those every day was just amazing into this very serious building where you know Versace and Saatchi was very very corporate
0: it was just the shit that that couldn't make it into Charles Saatchi's museum he's like just put it in the the lobby
1: (laughs) exactly they just kicked it out there and you know, there were, i don't know, there was at least a couple of them I remember, and uh, it was amazing. And so, you know, you'd we went, you know, just to go up into this very kind of stodgy corporate building up to Cliff Freeman's floor, and then you'd walk out, and you know, there was this lobby that um, that everyone will remember, where you would walk down, and there was just these awards just littered along the sides that weren't even, there was no shelves built for them. There was just hundreds of awards either side and you'd walk all the way down and, you know, and then Cliff had this incredible office in the corner and, you know, the whole, um, uh, the conference rooms, there was just many a story because Cliff's uh, wife had designed these conference rooms in the style of um, Frank Lloyd Wright and they they were incredibly expensive and very serious and everything around you, the surroundings were um just so stoic and you know built to last a thousand years you know and um but yet um the individuals in the building were uh the mo- the sickest most twisted minds that i've ever met in my life you know and just um so many of them i still keep in touch with i in my last past my uh, the job I just directed was with um William Gellner, who was um a senior copywriter creative director there that I worked with um and you know all these these people that were all very senior these creatives um Cliff had this amazing um ability and and you know he he liked collecting things and you know in a way he collected us you know everything i'm saying is, is is stuff we all talked about but he collected us as these creatives and we were expensive creatives and the best out there you know not to sound arrogant but i think what well, we were like very fortunate to be there and we all felt like we you know and i never i've never worked so hard in my life um you know i think We, my partner and I, we came in and we we needed to prove ourselves. And, you know, we would meet in the office at five in the morning and just work. So we'd get like four hours in before anyone even showed up and we'd work weekends. And, you know, this is (laughs) <laughs> obviously in the good old days before you have children and commitments. Um, but, you know, we worked really hard and we achieved a lot, in a in a short amount of time, but there was a lot to go around. There was a lot of work. Um, it was a very, you know, it was just a time that can never be repeated um, where every where clients took risks, where TV ruled um, pre, you know, internet was relatively new, but, you know, it wasn't all about social and, 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 you know, uh, immersive experiences. It was about TV, good TV ad ads really sold the product and everything was built around, um, how funny an ad was. So we would create jokes basically. And, you know, I think, um, uh, Eric Silver, who, you know, was a mentor and, you know, still, you know, I'm thankful to this day of what he, you know, helped me get to do. Um, he you know, would have us just write jokes. So we would write jokes all day long. So it would be just like, here's the brand, say uh, Coca-Cola or Mike's Hard Lemonade or whatever. And it would be like, all right, write gags. So we would just write gags and sort of come up with a loose premise. And then when we got that premise, if it was something that he was interested in, we would write more jokes and more jokes. And I think a lot of writers and a lot of creatives that came from Eric's influence still use that technique to this day, because, you know, it's something that Eric, I think, developed when he was working on, um, uh, I think, David Letterman or something like that, you know, when he was there. And and it's a really good way of bringing out the comedy. And I think any joke writer, any comedian, any stand-up comedian, you know, it's like, yeah, you can have funny bones, but you also need to push to the limits to you know, better yourself to write jokes that are beyond that, that anything that had been written before and to be fresh because so much has already been done. So you just have to work really hard at it, you know? Um, and so, you know, that time was really precious. Uh, it definitely influenced me to this day in terms of what I've learned. Um, and there's a lot I took away from it. And, and you know, and I think, um, you know, how, how comedy really works, how, um, pacing how jokes work in a 30-second ad, I think is, you know, what one of the, the, the main things I probably took away from that.
0: When you come from a place like that and they teach that's the place that teaches you the work ethic that you carry on the rest of your career with, you you must have an extra allergic reaction when some agency sends you a board that is just uninspired or feels like a first idea or feels like a good idea, but like no one really spent the time to love it. Uh, or to craft it, you like, everybody says they work hard. And the truth is some people work hard and some people don't, even though everyone says they do. When agencies send you that stuff, you don't, you don't tell them that, but do you have like an extra, like, you, you guys aren't fucking working hard over there.
1: Yeah. um, (laughs) Well, yeah, it's hard for me to think that. I mean, look, I've had, I think over the almost 20 years that I've been directing um, and not being agency side, you know, I've had lots of ups and downs with, you know, how to approach projects, you know, um, that gets sent to me. I think, you know, originally when I started directing and I was directing uh, in, a, in a in a team called Happy, you know, we would get sent boards. And I think my instinct was to always try and make them better. And like, you know, I mean, obviously as a director, you always want to make things better, but I would, you know, I think I overly rewrote things and, you know, you know, I didn't take into account that, you know, these you know, creatives and, uh, you know, and agencies spend a lot of time getting to a certain place. Um, I think as time's gone on, you know, clients get harder and harder, you know, to work with, you know, timelines are smaller, you know, and, you know, I tend to, you know, I have a, I, I think I look at things for a different lens than I did when I first started directing. And, then, you know, I, I almost, you know, not, That I don't want to make things better. I also know where they're coming from. I understand why they're in this place because I understand how clients can be tricky and there's a lot of boxes to tick in terms of, you know, fitting into a certain, you know, type of um, agenda that, you know, that they have. So, you know, it's, it's hard. I don't, you know, I don't tend to sit around going, I, I, every time I get a script in, to be honest, whether it's good, bad, ugly, excellent, whatever, I'm, I feel fortunate. I'm like, wow, somebody actually, you know, will consider me to, to take their baby and, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, for me, I'm always, that always makes me happy. Um, doesn't matter what project it is. Um, uh, and so, you know, I feel blessed.
0: (laughs) We're going to, we're going to dive way deeper into that, that director, agency relationship and when boards get sent in before we do you mentioned uh joining forces kind of quickly leaving the agency world and in the early 2000s joining forces with partner Richard Farmer to form the directing duo Happy um what precipitated that career move and what made you do it with a directing partner
1: yeah that's a great question I think when I you know when when in the early uh agency days of of cliff freeman uh i you know i was fortunate enough to work with a lot of great directors and i knew i wanted to be a director i didn't i didn't want to go on and be a creative director or an ecd as much as i respected that and that could have been an option um i i wanted to be a director and i think um you know i was heavily uh, influenced by uh the guys at tractor you know they were very they were very um influential in terms of like you know helping me um get my directing career going and and you know I saw how they worked within a team and to the, to this day they are the most successful team out there because you know and I don't know how they do it because you know when you have uh and you know probably most people that are listening to this podcast have had had um run-ins with them or worked with them in some capacity but you know they, you know, they're very, when I worked with them a few times, you know, I just, I I just thought it was a great way of working. I thought it was a great dynamic to have more than one person um, behind, you know, making decisions and, you know, and it's a tough job being a director. And I think when I started wanting to take it seriously in terms of being a director, you know, I had a, uh, you know, I wasn't only Richard, there was an editor, Lucas, um, sporting and uh and also a production designer uh tom wales of you know who were all friends of mine and from different circles of life you know and i you know we had you know we had this idea happy and you know the four of us kind of joined forces to have you know we all brought something different to the table and we thought oh well you know we can do this and um very quickly we realized that um that wasn't going to work <laughs> because you know we you know, I'd made a couple of spec commercials, um, and you know we were fortunate to win at, at Cannes, the Young Directors, and all that, and got signed with Smuggler and and um, you know Arden Sutherland Dodd in the UK, which was a, a production company who helped get us started. And you know, quickly we realised that actually four is four people is not going to work. So then it became Richard and I because we originally had come up with the the idea of Happy Together and um you know so we went off and you know did that for a few years and it was really fun and exciting and you know Richard to this day is a good friend and he's you know we had a lot of fun doing that um you know and I think sort of answer your question you know I think look I feel I feel like when the the thing about Tractor that I liked was that it was a brand and um you know I didn't I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think I had the confidence in myself to want to promote Guy Shalmadin as a brand, you know? So I liked this idea of, you know, especially because we were young and we didn't really have much work other than some great creative work that we'd done at Cliff Freeman and stuff, you know, so I liked the idea of promoting a a name versus my own name. Um, And so we had a lot of fun, you know, with happy as a, you know, an entity and pushing that as a brand and, um, that was great. And, um, you know, and then obviously, you know, I ended up going solo a few years later, but it was it was fun back then. And, and probably, you know, that's the main reason. I just didn't want to promote myself. <laughs> you I know?
0: mean, having partners is amazing. And when you find that person that you're simpatico with, but, you know, with the with very few exceptions, you know, Tractor in the advertising industry, the Cohen brothers in the filmmaking industry. Yeah. There's a reason you don't see it that much, which is just because you're partners, it doesn't mean you get to charge double. So as much as you like that guy, do you like him enough to split the proceeds 50-50? I mean, I have to think that's a big part of it as well.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I have to say um, there was a, <laughs> no name. So there's a directing team that I uh, ran into um, the other day. And I was like, okay and they were young and they just i was i felt like i was looking in the mirror from like 20 years ago and i'm like okay guys enjoy this you too right. you know you're gonna, this is what's going to happen and i just laid it out very frankly and uh and i was like you know you guys are gonna do really well you're going to travel around the world you're going to have a party you're going to have a lot of fun and then you're going to realize one of you is probably going to want to have a baby or something that's going to change you know (laughs) and then you're going to realize that it's actually a job for one person and uh, you're going to split up and do your own thing and so i gave them this whole like rundown i think they were just like what who the fuck is that? Yeah.
0: You <laughs> met the high school couple that's like, we're going to get married and have a slice. It's like, no, you're both actually going to meet a lot of amazing people in your life. And high school, you'll look back on fondly, but there's a lot of life ahead of you that yeah. you don't know about yet. Yeah. Um, you know, just to be a, a working director in our industry, much less a sought after director like yourself, is a feat. It's just so competitive. When it comes to agency creatives transitioning to be directors, you know, many have tried, far less have succeeded. I'm sure agency creatives who attempt that transition come to you for advice all the time. What advice do you give them if any?
1: Yeah, no, I know, mean, that's a great question. I yes, they I have had several that have come to me and some that have been successful and you know, I also I've been fortunate to over the years have some really good assistants that I've had that worked for me like day on a day-to-day basis and sort of I give them all similar advice, you know, and You know i think it's first of all i think you know there's definitely you get you have a leg up if you come from the agency side i think um and i think you know most of my assistants haven't worked in ad agencies and everything they have the uh they 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 get to see you know production on a day-to-day basis but they don't get to see advertising and they don't get to see that working with clients and like that it's not just about you it's about a lot of you know everybody has to be happy at the end of the day you know what i mean like you know yes you can make you can push things and everything but you've got to you know there's an agenda you're a gun for hire you know and so um you're not
0: just there to subsidize your art
1: no exactly it's you know it you can it is creative but you've got to you know you're there to you know sell products and uh, you know and i think that i've never frowned upon that i've always enjoyed that you know and so i think when Agency creatives come to me, you know. I I generally, you know, encourage them because I think that you know I feel like you know if they if you have that passion to do it, um, you know if you have that passion to do it, you know anything's possible. Um, and I think if you've been in the industry and you have the contacts. Um, you know where you've you've built trust with other creatives that will be the ones that eventually will give you jobs. You know that's a really a good really a good thing. Um, I think right now, you know, I if somebody if somebody was to come to me tomorrow, I'd say, well, I would want to understand what, where they are at in the industry and advertising because I think, you know, I just think quitting your your advertising day job just to go do that um, and not bring any income is tricky. You know, you need to probably. You know, I had to work for free for a year just to kind of, you know, build up my reel and, you know, actually get work. And it's, it's, it's been hard. It's been, you know, it's been a challenge. There's been, you know, even in the 18, 20 year career of directing, there's been months that you don't work. You know, I don't know whether, you know, I don't know where my next job, I have a job lined up in February, but it might go away or I have, you know, I don't know what job's going to come in for April, May, June this year. You never know. So it's a certain, there's a, I mean, I think if you're a freelance creative, that freelance, you know, muscle is, you know, something that um, is uh, not for everybody. And I think, you know, in a way as a director, you're a freelancer. So if you've got a full-time job where you're, you're making great money in, in you know, agency side and you're, you know, you're, you're booking new business, you're getting bonuses, you're, you know, life, you know, life is good. It's, you know, it's a big jump for you to say, I'm just gonna be a director and I'm gonna be making that kind of income, you know, tomorrow, it just doesn't come that easy. It's very, very hard. So I think you have to have a balance and a transition between, the two where it's a sort of hybrid. So you kind of are being a, you know, you're freelancing and you're directing or you stay within an agency. There's no reason within an agency why you shouldn't get an opportunity to direct something. If you're sought after and you're, you know, respected within the agency, there's always something small to direct within that agency. And you should be building your own, you know, reel that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the things I kind of like address and talk about and, you know, um you know with agency creators and you know um but you know also it's always hard because you know quite often you're in the middle of a big job there's a creative that comes up and say hey you know i've kind of wanted to direct and you're like you know and you maybe think to yourself man you know i don't know whether you're going to be the right person for that so you've got to kind of (laughs) protect you know protect them a little bit and you know guide them in the right way
0: Well, directors like you are a little bit to blame for that. I think with young creatives who are on set and, you know, they admire the role that you play, you know, in the path to making a film or whatever, you know, the creative output may be. And I think from the vantage points of creatives who are on set observing directors, directors often just make it look easier than it actually is. Um, I know that was actually that was true for me and I credit you with this. That was true for me until I shot a campaign with you uh, about 12 years ago for baby carrots It's still to this day, one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. And I loved working with you. And I remember I had this kind of awakening because, you know, I was the creative who stood over director's shoulders and felt like, you know, I was, I was built, I was making my own impromptu happy directing, you know, um, (laughs) duo with every director that we hired until I remember, approaching you and your director of photography and a couple members of your production team were discussing a set design and kind of this very complex uh, choreography that needed to happen on a certain timing and I stepped into this circle thinking that I would be highly additive and for the first time I felt like I was listening to a different language like I felt like you guys were speaking Klingon and it was very it was very shocking to me it was revealing to me how little I understood about the technical aspects of filmmaking um is that true of agencies, you know, in general that that we think that we maybe know a little bit more about filmmaking than we do or was that just, you know, one isolated case of pomposity on my part?
1: Um, I don't know. I think, you know, you get to work with very smart people. I mean, I I remember the job with you and, you know, this listen, I think everything comes down to personalities and who you, who you work with, you know, like I think um, you know, what the the, well, the process you know, is that, you know, you typically don't really get, unless you know somebody from a previous job, you know, you don't really get to meet that person until the callbacks. And then you kind of like you're thrown into this sort of, you know, uh, experience relationship very quickly, you know, pre-COVID, obviously you kind of, you know, you, you end up in a casting suite together and you're like, like getting to know, um people and really quickly and you're suddenly gonna have to be making this thing together and it's like a trust thing and you know there's sort of those you know the certain directors that don't mind the creatives being at the monitor with them for the whole duration of the shoot i tend to um keep them slightly at arm's length because you know for me i'm embarrassed with how pathetic some of the you know the the conversations that go on at my monitor with my team, you know, when you're trying to like figure out something. So you don't want them to be privy to all that, you know? So, you know, I don't know. I think every job's different. Every job that there's certain creatives you get on so well with the job I just did, I got on with the creatives so amazingly well, they were right there. I would just, you know, it was just full collaboration, you know, and that was the same of, as with the baby carrots job we did years ago. Um, I think, you know, gosh to, you know, I think that they creatives are smart they do understand what they want they do understand the the craft of a, a commercial you know in 30 seconds or a minute so i mean uh, it's subjective some people are, are, are more intelligent than others some people have an understanding more than others it's just you know how to you know how to just work together and you know and figure out you know the job in hand you know every job's different you know the job i just did was incredibly intense um, more probably top three most intense jobs I've ever done. Uh, the job before that was probably the top three least intense jobs I've ever done, you know, so you just never know. And, and every job is different and every creative team is different and every, you know, the, the gender of everybody is always different. So well, you're going to
0: work with, I mean, you work with some of the best agencies in the world. And so you are going to work with creatives who've, you know, maybe made hundreds of commercials have acquired a lot of, you know, technical understanding of filmmaking. And as a result, also understand, you know, the the best and most respectful and most productive way to interact with a director. Um, You probably also work with, you know, young, inexperienced teams who haven't been on very many sets, and they may be, you know, deferential and reverential and put a lot of trust into you and you can sort of feel that that desire to to just learn and soak it up. Um, Mm -hmm. The scary creative, I would think, that comes along every so often, is the one who doesn't know that much about filmmaking, but you know, believes that they can do your job. Yeah. Um, hopefully, there's hopefully, been, hopefully, those are few and far between.
1: There's been a few, um, and the, you know. There's been a few people that I would say I probably blacklisted. You know, like I will never want to see them again, <laughs> uh, purely because of uh, and and, it, and also I think it's a personality um, thing as well. this not getting on, but generally, um, yeah, generally people, you know, people are, are good and God. I mean, every job's so different because I always. Go in, you know, and the years of experience, you know, you kind of always go in with, you know, you know, this need and want to fully collaborate and fully, you know, want to kind of um, participate with them, the agency and the client in terms of like keeping them very much in the loop of what's going on. And that comes from, you know, years of sort of, you know, maybe being disingenuous at times or, you know um, trying to be sneaky and like after years of, of, um, of experience, I've kind of got to a place where I am, you know, and, and this is, uh, with my producer, you know, whoever, whoever I'm producing with or whatever, it's just like, we're just to be fully honest. There's nothing that, you know, there's nothing that we will, um, not be honest about throughout the whole process. Everyone is just in the know. And I think just being that with having that kind of integrity, I think just helps, with the process. Um, and, you know, that's not to say they will always have that same integrity, but, you know, I just try.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Smuggler earlier. You joined the production company Smuggler in 2003, just as you you both were really just starting out. Since that time, Smuggler has become one of the preeminent production companies of the past few decades. The relationship between production company and director is unique. It's, it's unlike almost any other business relationship. How do you describe that relationship? What does the company owe the director? What does the director owe the company?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. I mean, look, it's a thought on collaboration from the get-go. When I first met Brian and Patrick in New York, um, you know, uh, they they had nothing, you know, they were just like working out of someone else's office and they were like, you know, let's do this. I think it was the second or third director um, that they signed. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, I think with any relationship, it's like you have to obviously perform for each other. And um, so I feel like, you know, they've never felt like my bosses, because they're not, I'm a freelancer. Um, they just feel like like, you know, they have a vested interests in my career and i've had an invested interest in their success um as well and 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 i think we we keep each other honest um, i feel um, i feel you know in some ways i i, I feel like brian and patrick uh, are, are my coaches uh and i'm uh, you know you know either you know an, an athlete or a uh, you know not to you know I don't know. It just feels like they are—they very uh, much—they're in charge of 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 getting me jobs, um, and I'm also in charge of doing a good job to bring other jobs in. So it's just—it just works. It just works really well. So I think you know, I often, you know, um, call them for advice, um, and um, they are—they're always there for me. I I can't imagine there would be uh, better. Uh, production company owners out there. Hence why I've stayed at the company for so long, because I just think they, you know, and I think right now, you know, we've had many ups and downs in terms of like my career and, you know, the business and everything. And and I feel like right now I feel stronger than ever um, in terms of our relationship and what I'm doing creatively. So it just feels, you know, it feels really great.
0: We talked earlier about, you know, when boards come in, you st- you know, you expressed feeling gratitude that just to even be in that initial consideration set in terms of when you first, you know, open that PDF in your, in your inbox, what are you looking for in a script? I mean, not just genre, obviously you do way more than just comedy. Like, is it a feeling or are there, are there a set of principles that you apply? What is that criteria that you use to say, yes, I want to pursue this or, or no, this is wrong for me?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot that goes on. I think it's not as clean as you just reading the PDF and going creatively, that's right. I think, for example, yesterday I got a board in and it's a piece of repeat business that I had shot some commercials probably five or six years ago with. And I don't think they them as a brand have even made anything since. So I went into before I even opened that PDF, I already feel good about the project because I know the the team that's on it. And I feel like I don't, in a way, like, I don't know what's in here, but I kind of want to work with with them again because they've come back to me. So I've, I'm already have this sort of, you know, uh, pre, you know, incentive to do the job, even though I don't even know what's in there and then you kind of open uh, it. And there's other things that go on too, you know, typically, you know, it's about what's going on in the world. Like, you know, like, you know, if this, if it was this time last year, pre pandemic, I'm like, Oh, it's January. I've already just been to Canada for three, three weeks, doing a job, just got home. You know, is it a travel job? Do I need, do you know what I mean? Like there's there's a lot of things that you weigh up going into reading something. Do I want to travel internationally right now for that? Do I, you know, do I want to, only do a one day shoot. Do I, you know, there's, so there's a lot of things that kind of you weigh up before you even look at a job and then you read it and you're like, all right, this is cool. This stuff in here, you know, I'm always looking to how to make it better, how to, you know, what I will bring to it. I mean, I, I feel like I have this, um, I think mostly I'm always trying to like, do what everyone else is not doing, you know, in a way, like I'm kind of, um, sorry, I mean I always try to do uh try not do yeah you know, what everyone else is kind of doing in terms of the American kind of uh commercial market. You know, when so when I see something it always it makes me sick to my stomach if I have to execute another American kind of commercial which is you know bland environments, typical comedic actors, um, you know, a, a house that feels all American, you know, all those things that make things kind of vanilla in this world. I mean, sometimes that environment or design is okay because the comedic performance in there will elevate it to a point where it doesn't matter what the environment is. But, you know, I'm always trying to like do something that is visually more interesting than anyone else is doing. And um, in, in the comedy world, you know, like I, if the day that I don't care about cinematography uh, and, and the telecines process or, you know, framing or lensing or all that kind of thing will, you know, I don't really want to be doing it anymore. I really do care about visually everything as well as performance. Um, and I think, you know, um, you know, to kind of get back on track to your question, you know, those are the things you start thinking about when you read something. And I typically read things pretty quickly and then I'll come back and, and decide whether I'm going to engage or not. And then when I engage, then I go deep into it.
0: I mean, you've been at this for 20 years now. Do you ever open a board? and love the script or the idea, and then immediately think to yourself like, shit, I don't know how to do this. Not that you can't figure it out, but are you ever confronted with that specific fear of, I'm not sure how I would pull this off, or by now do you pretty much know how to pull off everything right away? (laughs)
1: Um, I think it's more like, I don't know how to pull this off with how many things they want to shoot in such few days. I think it's more, comes down to that kind of thing. I don't, I think anything, you know, fortunately, you know, as we know, like, directors, we just surround ourselves with great people and everyone, you know, affects, you know, my effects guy, you know, uh, or my production side, we can figure out, you know, how to do anything. But it's like, it's, it's more... Like if there's things working against the project, um, which will make it undoable. And that's normally comes down to money and time. You know, that's when, you know, then, then you, that's when I get nervous and that's when I kind of, you know, start thinking twice about whether I should take something like that on, which happened actually yesterday on another project, you know,
0: um, before agencies hire any director, they often ask multiple directors to write a treatment and this process has remained pretty unchanged for decades. I know from my side on the on the agency side, it feels like a flawed process because, you know, I may look at three treatments and director X's treatment is perfect and this is the right person, but director Y had this one interesting thought, you know, is that interesting thought the the intellectual property of director Y or is it, you know, is it unethical for me to to, you know, even if it gets into my subconscious to bring that sensibility of that one small detail into director X's treatment as we go off into production. And it feels like it's almost an impossible thing to avoid, even, you know, even if you, if you have respect for that person's ideas that they submitted in that treatment. So I just wonder from your end, I'm sure, you know, you've probably seen a spot for that, that you didn't win. And maybe it's like, man, that, that, either that feels way different than the way that my, that my treatment proposed and I'm glad they went that way. You know, they went with the right person, but I wonder if ever you look at a spot that you didn't get and you go, and that feels a lot like, you know, the, 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 you know, the fulcrum of my idea at the center mm-hmm. of that thing. Does it feel like a flawed process to you, I guess, is the, is the 30,000 foot question.
1: Um, I feel like, you know, the, you know, it's funny. Cause when I, when I was a creative, you know, we would, I remember one of my last few projects, you know, I kept all the treatments from that project from, you know, big name directors that were pitching on it. And, you know, they were all just like one written, one written page, you know, you know, and that was it. Maybe somebody wrote a page and a half. I think someone may have sent a video reference. And so you, you know, and I think that going, you know, when I started directing, you know, I was very aware of, you know, how to, you know, you, you you had to really prove yourself, right? You had to kind of, you know, be better than the rest because you were bidding against people that were way more established. So you would you would you want to go the extra mile, thus you know you would put more into the treatment, add visuals, you know, you knew you know how to put together, you know, a kind of almost publication of that treatment, you know, and put that in. So I think, you know, I'm you know, as much to blame uh, in terms of the process, in terms of like how extensive these treatments have gotten uh, as, as the agencies, I think, but, you know, you have to still have to, you know, you want to be the one that shines, you know, and, you know, in terms of, um, you know, seeing things in, a treatment that agency sees look i think that agencies have conversations with multiple directors they, there's lots of things I, I often when i come up with an idea i don't think oh my god this is i'm the only one that thought of this i i just assume that the agency have already thought of that and killed it or maybe not you know like cuz you know i know what goes on and the intensity in terms of a duo writer and art director coming up with ideas so you know i'm never I'm not that precious, to be honest. I think there was one time where quite obviously, um, and maybe twice this has happened, where an agency actually called in my reel or called in to look at a specific commercial, and then they made a very similar commercial in terms of technique and didn't ask me to do it. Um, And, you know, that probably bent me out of shape a bit, but not enough to kind of, have a conversation or call them. You just like, you know. I feel very fortunate to, you know. I, I'm sure I've done it. I'm sure like an agency's asked me to do something that maybe another director did. I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. I did it, and maybe that director's like, why did you know? I you know who knows, um, but yeah. I think we're we're generally I'm just like let's you know. I'm I'm just fortunate to be doing what I'm doing, and um, you know I'm I'm working and I'm happy, and you know that's good.
0: Good I think enough. you take great pride in being a, a craftsman. And, and I got to witness, you know, your, your level of craft, um, up close. Let's talk about craft versus budget a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's incre- you, you know, it's increasingly difficult to to be a craftsman as clients expect faster and cheaper productions. When you see a job that you want to do and you see, you know, tremendous potential in, but you can kind of identify immediately that there's not proper budget to do it, do it the way that you feel like is befitting of the concept. How do you prioritize what can and cannot be sacrificed to make it great while staying within a budget?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think, you know, experience shows that, you know, you can create quite a lot with very little, you know. Um, But if there's a script that has things that just make it undoable in terms of how many locations or you know special effects i think those are the kind of projects that fall flat and um, feel undercrafted when if they don't have enough money you know i think if there's a concept that's very simple you can always pull it off in a great way with the right level of craft um so yeah i mean i think with budget you know i'm i i do do like numbers and i do like understanding what the budget is i'm not one of those directors that you know, is just oblivious to to what things cost. I I hate waste. Um, I hate that um, money gets wasted on things that are not um, on screen. Um, you know, I think I like to pride myself on you know making the right choices. Um, you know, to you know to bring to to elevate things you know in the right way with with very little. Um, and I think that's a craft in itself, and I think it's fun. It's fun to do that, you know. I think it's also the English way in England when we make a commercial, you know, and the, you know, the the, the everything when the the casting director sends you uh, talent for for one role, they may send you eight or nine actors, you know. They don't send you 120, <laughs> you know. Like and you know, when you have a rack of clothing that you're that you've spoken about to your wardrobe stylist, and they bring bring clothes for an actor they don't in england they bring you maybe two or three outfits but they're all amazing you know in america it's like you know there's there's 20 different outfits you know like so there's you know i think i liked i like people i think less is more and just sort of i prefer i would prefer anyone within you know my team to be more selective about what they bring and be more thoughtful versus just quantity and i think you know, that's all those kind of decision make decisions, and you know, um, help craft things in a simpler way.
0: And also, like, of, yeah, good. No, go I'm just I'm glad you brought up the the casting process. That to me feels extremely flawed and wasteful. And you know, anyone, anytime I've ever met anyone who said they want to like you know move to LA and try to be an actor, I I wish that before they would make that decision that we could just live stream for them. Just what goes into a commercial casting, you know, at least in the US, I can't speak for the UK, and just see how many people are competing against each other for, you know, one line about saving 15% on your car insurance. It's just like, it's such a long day. And all of these people have an ambition to get the job. And if you see 150 people, 125 maybe eliminated before they even open their mouth, not because they did anything wrong, but because you're looking for something really specific. Um, Every person who auditions sort of just carries these varying levels of, you know, hope or despair based on how their career has gone and how many, how many jobs they've booked. But are there, are there any specific, you know, principles you've developed to help navigate an American casting call where you do see a lot of people or is it just kind of purely an exercise and sitting there, you know, and waiting to feel a certain feeling and knowing it when you see it.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a combination. To be honest, it depends on the, what the role is. I think you know. I think with all elements of the process, there's you know, you know, from writing the treatments to castings. Let's take casting specifically. Um, you know, there is these actors that come in, and yes, a lot of them you just they're not right, not funny, not you know. Um, but then there's a, there's sort of core people that you kind of call back and it's like, like I just worked with an actor the other day that I, I probably called back loads of times over the years. And it was like the first time I worked with them and they were great. And I I'm like, you're now on my way. You know what I mean? Like there's actors that I've worked with three or four times with in the same year, because I just know that they're going to deliver and they come in and they, you know um, um, so, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's all about, um, you know, it's all about just building these relationships with people that you kind of trust and know, and, and, and just having the experience of being, doing many, many casting sessions that, you know, have uh, over the years that kind of, you know, so that you can actually find people, new people, but also look at people that you've had, you know, that you've seen before and, 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 and know that they'll do a good job. So it's like, it's a balance there.
0: Well, I mean, and, and part of, being a successful director is being able to establish trust with your actors. Obviously commercial productions are much shorter than TV or film shoots, which means you just have way less time to build that relationship. Um, How do you, how do you with new actors you've never worked with before, how do you accelerate that connection to build trust so that you can get the best performance out of them?
1: That's a good question. I think the, um, Yeah. I mean, I tend to like to talk to to the actors before, like we have the callback, we pick them. I like to talk to them before. Um, Typically it's on the fitting day when we're doing the fitting and it all depends on what the role is. You know, if it's just someone playing a dad drinking a cup of coffee in a kitchen, you know, and it, you know, there's not much to the role. It's like, you don't really need like a lot of, you know, input. I've been fortunate um in in the over the last year or so to be kind of doing a few more like jobs with celebrities and good actors and and the job i just did was with that and i you know and and these this talent that are you know movie actors or you know or or tv actors or whatever they they they, they want to have those conversations prior they want to have they want to understand what the role is and it just there's a whole different level of craft and an experience that i'm having with these kind of jobs where you know it's actually um good because i feel like i'm growing more as a director and, and, and working harder because you just can't you know show up to set unprepared um uh, with exactly what you're trying to articulate in a moment with uh you know a, you know a, a, an actor that's had like years more experience with you on the big screen you know so um you know it's it's a, it's fun whereas typically with commercial actors you know i'm unfortunately as, as great as they are it's they they are a bit more disposable and you kind of you know you don't necessarily need as much out of them because it's just like maybe a quick moment or quick gag or something right. you know
0: Well, you made reference to celebrities. I mean, people would recognize so much of your work, but most recently you directed uh, the Uber Eats spot with Mark Hamill and Patrick Stewart. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how that project came to fruition and just the feeling on set of having these two bona fide cultural icons playing off each other in a really funny, really weird way.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the project came in um, for this great... Uh, Stu and John, uh, the great creative team that I've actually worked with before and they they sent it to me and like when well, I remember seeing the scripts I'm like, they had these very kind of lofty ideas of who they wanted as talent Mark Hamill and Patrick Stewart and I was just like, yeah, great, right. you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, there's no way they'll get them but yes, they did somehow um, brilliantly um, done you know, uh, and um, yeah, that the job was you know, middle of the pandemic, which we still are. Um, so there was, you know, obviously a lot of safety protocols in place, um, with that kind of level and bringing those two together, they'd never been together before. And I was, I cherish that fact that I was part of that process of two great actors who, you know, I had to have several conversations with, um, conference calls, um, prior um mainly because um for them to understand the concept and you know the commercials were was them obviously you know jabbing each other a little bit and mark had um kind of issues with with he's like you know i'm a nice guy i would never say anything like that to someone so esteemed as sir patrick stewart you know there was these conversations and then patrick would be like come on (laughs) come On Mark, it's, you know, we're you know, we're just, you know, we're something a bit of English fun, you know, like you know, so Patrick really helped get get Mark on board and you know and make it all kind of work. Um and you know, yeah, I think I was fortunate and you know, I've done a couple more of those um uh spots for Uber Each One that we just shot, um, where you know, I'm fortunate that we've set them up uh, um, and they've Uber and um Special, which is the agency have given us or special uh, have given us the ability to set them up in the right way, which is we have this very full on rehearsal day, which so we have a pre light and a rehearsal day, which is where I get to, you know, block the whole commercial or commercials out uh, and, and edit the whole thing together before we actually go into the day. So it's like a luxury that, you know, I get to do on certain type of jobs. I normally do it on like special effects jobs or things, but where where we know, you know, so my focus fully on the shoot day can be about um, connecting with the talent and making sure that we get the most out of them. Um, and I don't have to be thinking about like, oh, where's the camera gonna go or what what's happening here? It's just full on um, focus on the talent. Um, and so it
0: works really well. Guy, this is a safe space. What was the joke at the end of that spot that didn't make air that you wish they that they had gone with?
1: I have to be honest. The one that they ended up with was the one. Yeah. Um, and that's what's so great. You know, um, it, was, it was something that everyone hadn't really presented to them at the time. It was something that the writers had in their back pocket um, that they kind of wanted or the creative team wanted to do and it was just like all the stars aligned and I just kind of like approached them at the last possible minute and said do you, can you just do this one and they were standing up and they just did it and it was just the one that made it into the you know the edit so I'm really pleased and, I, and uh, you know I'm really pleased that that worked out.
0: Almost every job is, is, is pitting you against a list of other directors who've had similarly amazing careers in their own right. This is a, a two-part question here. One is do you feel like you're competing against the same three to five people your entire career? And number two is, do you ever reach a point in your career where not getting the job bothers you or hurts any less? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think um, look, I think you go in phases on who you bid against. You know, like it's weird. It's like sometimes you're like, three jobs in a row, I'm bidding against this director, you know, and then then somebody else. You know, I think in the comedy world, there's certain people that you kind of bid against. And like yeah. certainly the people that I admire and uh and and you know rate uh kind of I'm always excited to be bidding against them. I think it makes you you know ups your game. Um and you know also like in the US I might be bidding against a certain type of director, whereas in the UK I'll be bidding against a different type of director. You know, so I think it's all you know all depends. Um it doesn't Oh, just hey, my son Jude.
0: Do you Hi. think your Do you think your father is a very good director or merely an adequate director? A really good director. Really good. What were we saying? So the other part of it was, uh, you know, artistic people have delicate egos, whether we like it or not. Uh, does not getting the job oh, ever, yeah. ever hurt any less?
1: Um. You know, I think I feel like I've managed to. To I I think there were, yes, the certain jobs you work so hard to get, and then you don't get them, and then you can be, the, you can be upset about it, but it doesn't last long. You know what I mean? Like it's just like next morning, boom, moving on. You know, it's not. You know, I'd say it. You know, sometimes you just know in your gut if you're going to get the job or not. You know. You know, like and typically, I think I do. I, I know if it's going to go my way or not there's been times where i don't think it's going to go my way and it does you know there's you just, it's so unpredictable you know it's like you just never know um and then when you i think if it's i own to be honest i only get upset if it's if it was something creative that i really cared about i don't if it was like a big money job or something and i don't get it i'm never like you know, I'm just like, it wasn't meant to be, it's fine. But if it's something that you just creatively feel like it could have elevated you or made you better be great for the real or be great, you know, then, then it's upsetting, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't last long. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: One more before we we wrap up here, you created, you created the first ever live action virtual reality horror film called Catatonic, which received pretty nice acclaim. Um, Having had that experience, are you any, more or less bullish on virtual reality films as something that audiences will broadly embrace in the future?
1: Um, Good question. Um, Yeah, I mean, I had a three-year kind of, you know, relationship with VR where I made a few films. Um, It was very, very exciting to be on the cutting edge of um, that technology and be creating in a different way. Um, And I wouldn't, you know, I just love that I had that that experience. Um and I but I don't feel like uh I feel like I've come back into advertising. Not that I left advertising, but I feel like part of my focus was on the VR for those years. And you know, I, I feel like I've come back into advertising more passionate about it than I ever have. Um because I think it's it's just um simpler way of communicating. And you know I think VR there was so much um, there was there's so much uh emphasis on doing everything in cg because it was cheaper and easier and or interactive that you know for me that um the live action was always going to lag behind a little bit because the quality was never there will it be there at some point sure um but you know i feel like i'm i'm sort of done with it i I, i'm sure there'll be a time i'll make another vr film um but uh, Right now, I'm just that's not my passion at all, and my passion is more in in commercials, really.
0: Yeah. We end every interview with the same three questions. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. Number one, Guy Schelmerdine. What is the word or phrase of advertising slash production jargon that just makes your skin crawl the most? Well.
1: I think beyond the word, it's just more the essence of clients wanting to, you know, just make everything so damn happy and clean and, you know, generic, um, you know, and obviously the, the key word that gets under your skin is aspirational. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to just leave with that. I think it's just, you know, the vanilla-ness of, of, you know, wanting everything just to be so, damn normal that it just loses any personality.
0: It's one of, I think the great missteps in any creative endeavor is this, um, this false belief that um, that to create something broad will attract a broad audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like actually specific things attract broad audiences. Dave Chappelle is a broadly beloved comedian who's talking about very specific experiences. The Sopranos is about a very specific experience, like everything that we love. In fact, the more you love it, you may find the more specific it is and the more it attracts this really broad audience. And yet for some reason we, we easily forget that lesson uh, when we try to apply it to advertising and it's like, yeah, uh, question number two, what is the most messed up thing you've ever heard a client or creative director say in a pre-pro meeting?
1: Yeah. Well, this one, I mean, I'm not known, I won't name anyone, but um, I was kind of early on in, in, in my career. I was doing a job um, somewhere far away. And I remember it was a very, very intense, hard prep um, and, um, the, and very complicated, um, but we we're in a good place. And the pre-pro um, was about to start and the creative director of the agency had flown in and, um, basically hadn't, didn't really, I I don't even know if he'd seen the pre-pro book or knew anything that was going on. And he pulled me aside and he said, um, and he was just absolutely, you know, so intense. And he was just like, um, he was just like, uh, I've just flown in from, LA and, and uh, you know, we're losing clients all over the place. And like this client is so important to us. And so in this meeting, just do everything I say. And I was just like, (laughs) you know, and that's how I went into this pre probe meeting, like from this guy who I had not met, who had nothing to do with the process was basically telling me that I couldn't communicate anything that I wanted to about this project. And I had to do anything that he wanted me to do. And I, I felt, you know. As you can imagine, you just feel it was pretty uh, demoralizing, and you know, if, you know, it was just not the way to kind of inspire, you know, a director or, or, or anyone during the process. So that was probably the worst experience I've had. Do
0: pre-pro. what I say. Um, yeah. How was the pre-pro, by the way? Did it end up fine, or or did he have some very peculiar instructions for you?
1: Yeah, I think I um I challenged him on doing everything he said. <laughs> I was. Back then, a lot more cocky, and like I'm not going to, you know, we right. do what I say.
0: Final question is called the one that got away. What was the best thing you were supposed to direct, or maybe you actually did direct that got killed in the 25th hour?
1: Ooh. Yes. So that's a good, good question. I feel like I feel like there's one that got away when I was a creative. I don't know if that's it um, counts. Yeah. Uh, so my partner Grant Holland and I, we had this project when we were at Cliff Freeman um, and I mean, I think to this day, whenever we meet up, we talk about it. It was, it was this uh, concept called four legged boy. And it was for, I think it was for finish line or, or, or Nike. It was like this, um, this spot. And we had this concept about this boy that had four legs and um, it was, we were just so passionate about it and great. And we, you know, back in that day, we, we were lucky enough, we were talking to, I think, like Jonathan Glazer, you know, um, Frank Budgeon, you know, that level of directors that wanted to um, do it. And I think it died because we didn't have enough money, but it was this this concept that we were just so excited about and we, you know, and it didn't happen for one reason or another. And uh, yeah, to this day, I'm still like, I'm pretty bummed about it. I mean, there's been jobs, obviously, as a director that, I mean, there's a, there was a job I remember that I passed on because I didn't see anything in it and I think maybe I was hung over when I looked at the script or something you know and uh, it went on to win like a grand prix I think you know <laughs> stuff like that happens you know but vie, it's not really you know it was meant you know I mean who's to say I would have won the job anyway I passed on it um but it was you know there's stuff like that that happens but it happens to everyone I'm sure
0: Well, Guy, working with you many years ago was one of the really enjoyable and memorable experiences of my career. And it was amazing to catch back up with you today. And uh, I got a funny feeling you and I will do something good together in 2021.
1: I hope so. Thank you so much. Pleasure to see you again. And uh, yeah, good luck with this. All right, man,
0: see you soon. All right, thank you to my man Guy Shelmerdine. Thank you to all the listeners who continue to support this podcast. Man, you know I'm about to tell you the same shit I tell you at the end of every episode. If you are liking the pod, please share it with a colleague or friend, parent, uncle, aunt, grandparent who's just really into advertising or just, you know, watch Mad Men a few times. Anybody who's into pop culture is into this show. That's a goddamn fact. We'll be back to you in most likely mid-February. And until we talk again, peace.